Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And Sarah, today I'm going to tell you about where old wind turbine blades go and other components. Winter, oh, like the, in the Midwest, they have a ton of them to make power, right? Exactly. So wind turbines, wind turbines have been used uh, for a long time uh, to make electricity. 1887 was when the first one was made. Oh, uh, okay, cool. They didn't get started being used for major power production until around the 1990s. And there were some before then, but it was sort of a big push forward for wind power in the 90s. And wind turbines have around a 25-year working life. So there's a bunch of wind turbines from the 1990s that are, I'm not going to say expiring, but reaching the end of their most efficient life cycle. So there's a big process going on, particularly in the United States, of refitting uh, wind turbines. And so I'd like to start um, you know, I've given you a little introduction about what wind turbines actually are. And I'd like to tell a little Sophia Petrillo style story <laughs> to, to give you sort of an impression of how big these things are. So picture it. West Virginia, 2012. You're me and you're driving a federal vehicle on US 33, which is a highway that crosses both the Allegheny and the Appalachian Mountains. And you're headed to a work site where you're going to do some work on invasive plant species. And you notice there's a long line of cars ahead of you going about eight miles an hour, which (laughs) on a 15% grade is very slow. And you're hoping it's not some sort of horrible crash. When suddenly you see, after you round a curve, a wind turbine blade on a truck, taking up the entire flipping road. And it was like the size of a football field. It was staggering how big it was. Wow. And there were uh, blocker cars ahead of it and behind it. And it didn't take up both lanes, but it, meaning like you could, you could have oncoming traffic. But getting stuck behind those turbine blades, which happened again, and again, and again, and again, for the year that I was in West Virginia, because there was a big push for construction of wind turbines in the mountains there when I was living there, it became almost like a joke, because you're just stuck behind this piece of equipment that is as big as a building. Just it, It's just incredible. So, that's how big wind turbine blades are. And just wind turbine the blades segment. are that big. Yeah, and there are actually ones uh, now that are being constructed that are even larger than the ones that I saw. Wow. So wind turbines are often, most often, modern ones, made out of fiberglass, which is a composite of shreds of glass and epoxy, essentially. Mm -hmm. And some of them are also made from carbon fiber, which is stronger but it's also significantly more expensive. 
and expense tends to play in very strongly with particularly any energy generating, I guess, product that is trying to compete with fossil fuels. So we've got lots of huge, and I mean huge, huge fiberglass components because a lot of the metal components can be scrapped. And Sarah actually did a very comprehensive review of how different metals are scrapped and what can be done with them in our scrap metal episode, which is actually our second most popular episode. So it's a good episode. (laughs) And so the components that can be scrapped are scrapped, but then we've got fiberglass, lots of fiberglass. So one thing that's done with it, like it's done with many things, is they're landfilled. They are put somewhere and buried. There's actually a massive wind turbine graveyard uh, in Casper, Wyoming. And Casper, Wyoming got paid a bunch of money to accept these wind turbine uh, parts. Now, fiberglass is, compared to a lot of things we landfill, fairly inert. It doesn't really biodegrade quickly. Obviously, it's glass and plastic, and neither of those things biodegrade quickly. But it also doesn't leach a lot of nasty stuff. So in Wyoming, they, the, it's not as intensive a, a landfill construction as is required for, say, household waste or toxic waste or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So being landfilled is one of the major dispositions of wind turbines. Wow. But, yeah. But one of the major reasons that that's the case right now is because we are hitting just the first wave of end of life cycle wind turbine, I guess, elimination. And it's not uncommon when you've got sort of the first time around for a technology to meet the end of its life cycle and new ones to come in. Maybe maybe it wasn't thought very hard about how they would be disposed of when they were first created and then it was sort of assumed that they someone would figure something out between then and now that happens with so many technologies it's uh, i think it's just a human thing that we do yeah we Um, we don't have very good far sight we're good at the near term but not the far sight it's it's a problem with our species i think yeah (laughs) And so, you know, I'm not trying to point fingers and like, oh, these people who invented this stuff are so irresponsible. It's like they were human beings and human beings are fallible. So what else can be done with these? Well, uh, there are companies that actually break down fiberglass composites into little pellets. And then they can be used in things like injectable plastics or waterproof boards that can be used in construction. So... That's a newer technology. And so it's not done on a massive scale. There are certain different companies that do this, but they're smaller companies. They're smaller scale production. And that's not also intended as a criticism. You got to start somewhere and it's better to test it out on a small scale than a large scale. There's also the option of pyrolysis. And actually Sarah covers this pretty well, I think, in the Where Do Crayola Markers Go episode. Mm-hmm. So so thank you, Sarah. You've done like half this episode for me. Oh, nice. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, pyrolysis is heating up 
typically plastics in a sometimes it's called an inert atmosphere or a low or no oxygen atmosphere at very high temperatures. And then the pyrolysis process can often generate energy. And then uh, the materials that are uh, produced at the end, because it's not combustion, it's not burning, can be used for other things. And so that is doable. We know how to do it, but it is very energy intensive. And it's difficult to justify the cost of something that's very energy intensive when you can just dump it in Casper, Wyoming, which I would bet Wyoming has a lot of space where you could dump things if you were looking to. There's a lot of land out there. If you were looking to cut corners. My mom lives in Wyoming and I've been there and there's a lot of land out there. Yeah. And I don't want people to do this. I'm not recommending no. you just, you know, everybody dump stuff in, in Wyoming. Wyoming, <laughs> Wyoming might saying, get mad. Oh, uh, yeah, they should. Uh, <laughs> it's something that just can be done. So All eight of them living there are going to get mad oh. eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Once they all hear about it. <laughs> so Europe has in some places embraced more readily wind power than places in America. Not always the case, but often the case. And the Netherlands have come up with some very creative ways to reuse wind turbine blades. There are several playgrounds made from wind turbine components and they're really cute looking. And I'll, I'll post a picture on our, I guess, Twitter and Instagram of they've got slides they've got climbing things and because it's made of fiberglass that's if it's you know properly handled it's a pretty inert product it's not hazardous for kids to play around in it so super useful they make slides out of that that's amazing yeah exactly i want a slide i want a giant wind turbine slide that'd be so amazing it it they look like a lot of fun they're very neat and tidy playgrounds and they're white and so they look very like fresh and modern I guess Mm -hmm. compared to I don't know the the very weirdly colorful with chipped paint of 50 layers of paint playgrounds that we had as kids (laughs) so that's about all that can be done with wind turbines and so there's a push for a lot more thought into full life cycles of the products especially as wind turbines get bigger and bigger and bigger because it's the type of thing where we got to do something with them and if we don't have to waste them there's no reason not to or there's no reason to waste them I, I apologize that's that was poor grammar on my part there's no reason to waste something useful if you don't have to oh I forgot one aspect I'm sorry Uh, One aspect is, so there are rigors of design standards and lifespans that certain countries require or maintain. And there are other countries that would accept wind turbines at a lower standard of, I guess, we'll go with physical integrity or efficiency or age. And so it's not terribly uncommon for there to be a secondhand market for wind turbines. And because they're so big, transporting them can be 
an interesting challenge, uh, as demonstrated by my time in the mountains of West Virginia, wherein I got stuck behind them a lot. And so I would assume, and it might not be the case, uh, that the secondhand market tends to be very regional. And so you would need someone providing secondhand wind turbine parts near where you would like to buy them versus, say, you know, around Randolph County, West Virginia, them shipping all of their discontinued uh, wind turbine parts in 20 years to Myanmar. Just doesn't seem likely. That's where old wind turbines go. Okay, so now I'm totally going to be surfing that... um state ads for to see if I can buy wind turbine parts so I can have a giant slide coming out of my house and realize my dream of having a slide coming out of my house that from when I was fabulous. like eight <laughs> that's awesome you know I had never even thought of it I just assumed they were there forever I don't know why well and it's I mean they have a 25-year lifespan, and the first major wave, particularly in the U.S., was in the 90s. So that's mm-hmm. about 25 years. So you don't see, oh, let's replace our wind turbines until now. Yeah. So it's perfectly reasonable to not think about it if you're not in the industry. Yeah. Wow. I've never actually been close enough to one to know how big they are, but I, I've judged that they were big just from driving through rural Illinois. There's a bunch of them near Bloomington and Peoria, Illinois, and you can see them so far off into the distance that they're obviously large. I'd never been close enough to one to really gauge the the gauge of them, the how huge they are. That's amazing. They are so big. It's staggering. And the ones that I saw were just ones that they were able to fit up a mountain, up, you know, very tall mountains with very curvy roads. Yeah. The the highway we were on, this is just morbid and the, the, I don't need to tell this story, but I'm going to. Had, Do it. M- had multiple locations on it where people would just fly off the road and then fall down the mountain. Uh, and it happened annually, and there were several times it happened while I was working there. Was oh, horrible. my gosh. Yeah. So that's just a sad story. Did you ever drive and just be like, hope I don't fly off the mountain today? Oh, my God, Sarah. I won't drive through West Virginia ever again if I don't have to. Because <laughs> I roads... can just imagine myself just like, I I hope I don't fly off the mountain today. <laughs> The roads are very well maintained and very well constructed in my experience. There has been a lot of push for higher quality roads. It's just that the landscape is so hostile to driving. Yeah. It is just scary. Yeah. So that's my I'm glad you didn't fly off the mountain. Or if you did, you survived and you're here today. Uh, Yes, exactly. (laughs) And I'm grateful. Me too. So I wanted to make a correction of something from our last episode. I was talking about the Principality of Sealand, and I kept saying 1977 when I was talking about Gianni Versace and the whole passport thing. It was actually 1997, and... 
I don't know why I kept saying 1977, but it was 1997. And for some reason, it was really bothering me. I think I had just stopped talking about 1978, so I had the 70s on my mind. I didn't even notice. <laughs> okay. I noticed it because I kept saying it. I was like, was I saying 97 or 77? Because it's 97. But anyway, if that sort of thing bothers you, then it was 1997. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always nice to correct mistakes. Yeah. Agreed. Even if you didn't care and didn't notice it, I -hmm. noticed it. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about my favorite book and the true story behind it. So my favorite book growing up was The Island of the Blue Dolphins. I don't know (gasps) if you are familiar with this book. I love this book. Yes. I've, I've read it numerous times. Uh, I first read it, I was at camp after school camp and one of my camp counselors when I was like I was I'm gonna say I was eight or nine years old and she was reading the book to some younger kids and I just was enthralled by this book so I picked it up at the library and I read it and then I read it again and then I bought the book and read it again like I've I've read it numerous numerous times so the book is by Scott O'Dell and from 1960 And it's about their survival of a 12-year-old girl named Karana who lived on an island alone for 18 years. The story is that Karana and her family and her tribe, um, they were, most of the male members of her tribe were killed by a band of Aleut hunters and Russian uh, otter trappers uh, when they tried to leave the island without paying for the otters, as had been established between Karana's father, the chief, and the uh, Captain Orlov, the, the head of the trappers. And they tried to leave, and so the men confronted them, and there was a huge massacre. And in the confrontation, I think only one, one or two, like the little boys and an older man were left alive so Mm -hmm. a ship came for them and this never really explained in in the book but a ship came for her tribe and they gathered on the beach and her family and the tribe leave and Karana's on the boat she realizes her brother is not on the boat with them so she jumps overboard and there's a storm coming I guess and so the ship leaves without them and so Karana and her brother are on this island by themselves. Karana is very, very resourceful young woman. And her brother is kind of an idiot, but he's a little boy. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, her brother is killed by the feral dogs on the island. And Karana vows revenge. And she kills a, a lot of the feral dogs, but is about to kill the pack leader, but decides not to, takes mercy on him, and she ends up taming him. It's a major part of the story. So a major part of the story is Karana doing a lot of things to survive, like taming the feral dog, uh, talking about doing the traditional men's work in a tribe, like hunting and trapping. She builds a house out of whale bones, which is I think is one of the coolest parts of the story. She secretly befriends an Aleutian girl that comes with the seasonal hunters. And eventually, at the end, she leaves the island on a ship with one of her dogs, like her, one of her tame dogs. And they take her to the mainland, and she talks a little bit about not liking the Western dress, but that's where the story ended. I never read the sequel. I didn't want to ruin it because it's my favorite book. 
And so I didn't I read know. the sequel and it's kind of crushing. So if you deeply love the story and don't want it to sort of be amended in your head, go ahead and don't read this. I, w- I would appreciate that because I know this true story now. So I knew this was a true story and there was a little blurb in the back of the book, but it didn't go into too much. There's a lot more information now. So where did Karana go? Who is who's the actual true story about? So Scott O'Dell actually did a really, from when I delved into the true story, he did a really good job picking up the little pieces of the puzzle about the lone woman of San Nicolas Island, which is who this, who his story is about. She was baptized when she came to the mainland in 1853 as Juana Maria. So she's been baptized, given a a Christian name. Her name's Juana Maria, and she lived on San Nicolas Island alone from 1835 until 1853. So the story is very similar between Karana and Juana Maria. Her, her, there was a massacre of Aleutian trappers and Ru- the Russian-American company came to her island and killed off a lot of the people and killed off and raped a lot of the people on the island. And so when the Uh, Catholic missionaries heard the story, they sent ships out to remove the people from the island and bring them to the mainland. Well, that Mm. happened, but Karana was not among those people. There was a story later in the 1880s, and they think maybe this was made up by people just making the, the story more romantic, that she jumped back into the water to save her baby, who she realized wasn't on the ship, or her little brother, either one. When Scott O'Dell took the story, he he made it her brother. Mm-hmm. So her people were taken to the mainland in a boat called Peor Esnada, which is better than nothing, is my <laughs> understanding of the uh, translation of it. And the, there was there was a storm coming, and they had to leave. And then eventually the ship couldn't go back because various things happened and eventually it sunk. So in 1835, the ship brought all of her islanders, her tribe, to the mainland. And so she was left alone. Whether or not she had a brother or a baby with her, it isn't clear. Um, The problem with Juana was that she was the last remaining member of her tribe. So when her people got to the mainland 18 years before Juana Maria did, they had no immunity to the European diseases on the mainland. So most of them had died by the time she got there. So she is the, she's the last remaining, remaining member of her tribe. Her tribe was, had been isolated enough that um, her language and her culture was pretty different. So when she came to the mainland, they tried to get someone to come and translate for her, but they couldn't really find anyone. They found someone, a Native American of the Luiseno tribe, who they think is probably the Luisenos are closely related to the Nicolenos, which is the name for the tribe that Juana Maria was part of. Um, And he could translate a little bit because their languages were similar. My guess is if you're the last remaining Italian speaker and you don't have anyone to translate for you, but you find someone who speaks Spanish, it would be kind of a similar thing. You'd lose some words, but 
Some might be similar. So the story is, in 1853, after accounts from fur trappers that there was a woman living out there, it appears that a Catholic priest paid a man to find her. And this story varies as to whether it was $100, if it was $200, it depends on the Catholic priest, the priest name changed. But anyway, hearing these stories, uh, a fur trapper named George Nadever, he is very interested in her, so he launches expeditions to find her. He eventually finds her, and after the, the third attempt of kind of going around the Channel Islands, which is where San Nicolas Island is, he finds her in a hut made from whale bones, wearing a skirt of cormorant feathers. So this is a huge part of Scott O'Dell's story about mm -hmm. the cormorants and catching them and making this beautiful skirt of cormorant feathers. So she returns to the mainland with him and lived with him until her death. So... They were friends. He he helped her out. He She lived with his wife. Um, they talk about how uh, she's very pleasant. She smiles all the time. She loves all the food she wasn't able to eat on the island because if you think, the Channel Islands are not tropical islands. They're rocky. They're not tropical. They're, they have the same like seasonal weather patterns. I would say like San Francisco. It mm -hmm. can get a little chilly. It's foggy. She lived off berries. She lived off roots. She lived off seashells. She hunted seals. Um, a lot of her, she she sewed things from seal sinew. And they talk about in, George Nadever talks about in his accounts of her, how her teeth, she smiled all the teeth time, but her teeth were worn down like a lot. And in the book, she uh, Karana uh, uses her teeth a lot to do the sinew. If you remember that, mm -hmm. I yeah. Do. So her teeth were one of Maria's teeth were worn down, and this is this is uh, I guess Scott O'Dell picked up on this and talked about this in the book. He did a really good job, from my understanding of the true story in Scott O'Dell. Mm -hmm. So when she died, like I said in 1853, she had been eating all these fruits and vegetables and meat and she loved horses because she'd never seen one and she eventually dies of dysentery unfortunately because she she just can't handle all this stuff that she was eating right. that she had never eaten before uh, a study of her songs and her language that were recorded uh, has placed her in the Nicolino group of Native Americans that, like I said, are closely related to Luisenos, which are the natives from the Los Angeles and San Diego area. And she was born, or she was buried in the Nadever family plot in Santa Barbara Mission Cemetery. So in eight, 1928, uh, a group of Daughters of the American Revolution actually put a plaque there, so you can go and visit it. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. Another location for our road trip. Yes. So San Nicolas Island, I'd never even heard of this. I didn't know anything about the Channel Islands, had no idea. I had no idea that there were islands that close to the shore of of, San, of California. So San Nicolas Island is 60 miles west off the coast of California. I think its closest point is, it's in Ventura County. Mm-hmm. The island now is owned and operated by the U.S. Navy. 
um, from 1957 to 2010 at various times, so not all in that span of time, but a few times in there, uh, research rockets have been launched from the island. It was one of huh. the choices... It was one of the choices from for uh, munitions testing, but uh, for the Trinity experiment that I talked about mm-hmm. before White Sands was picked, fortunately, because I think that's really close to California. I wonder if that how close that is. I'll have to look this up to the island or the bay I was talking about where the nuclear satellite fell in. You should totally look that up. It actually might be pretty close. It probably is. Yeah. Uh, so the island was settled uh, about by the Native Americans at least 10,000 years ago and might be sooner. Archaeological digs, uh, there have been some over the years just because of the story of Juana Maria and curiosity about the Nicolenos because she was the last one, as far as we know, um, mm-hmm. have turned up exactly what Nadever has said. They turned up the whalebone hut. Uh, a bunch of artifacts, redwood boxes stashed around the island in various places, and the cave with a ton of um, artifacts from her tribe, from Native Americans. And so mm-hmm. it seems like all of those accounts were true. And she was living in the cave as well in the book. Like it was her, she seasonally either lived in the cave or lived in the hut. Yeah. And so yeah, there was I- a... A relatively recent dig in the cave, I think it was in 2015, that was halted because the Luisenos did not like the Luisenos, who, from what we can tell, are the closest related Native Americans to mm-hmm. her tribe. They're like, we don't like how you are excavating the dead here. And so the Navy and the Luisenio tribe um, have halted any digging there. But all the evidence points to... The many parts of this story being true, and her tribe was there, and apparently Galas Ott was the name of the uh, island that she gave in the book. Mm-hmm. That's apparently the name that the Chumash Indians of the area actually gave the island. So we have no idea what her tribe was called, but they were dubbed the Luisane, or the Nicolenos by people who have later studied the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. So it's there. It's owned by the Navy. San Nicolas Island is there. Her hut is apparently there. You can't go there. It's owned by the Navy. <laughs> but um, am... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I am super surprised in a pleasant way uh, that the Navy bothered to listen to the Luisenio tribe and say, hey, yeah, okay, we won't dig up your ancestors. I was surprised by that too, but the Navy actually helped them halt the archaeological dig. And apparently the people involved in the dig we're not happy, but they were, but the Louis was like, we have cultural affiliation with this, with this stuff. You, I don't like how you're treating the dead, which is impressive. Yeah. It's important to be respectful of other people's dead. Yeah. And you or, have or talked about own. that. <laughs> or your own. <laughs> and you, you know, have anybody's. talked about that in previous podcast and previous episodes as well. Yeah. I, it's something that's kind of important to me personally that people be able to have some degree of autonomy about their burial 
And so I've, I've covered it in disinterred bodies and I've also covered it with mummies. Yes. So we've got a lot of episodes that you could listen to on top of this one. Yeah. So what did we mention? We mentioned scrap metal pyrolysis with the mm-hmm. Crayola episode, then your zombies. And then what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, disinterred bodies and disinterred mummies. bodies and mummies. Yes. That's funny that yours tied in two of my episodes and mine tied in two of yours. I love it. I know. We've we're, I, we're we've done team. enough episodes now. I think that's going to happen. <laughs> I think it's going to happen a lot, and I think it's great. It's amazing. We're suggesting things. If you want to listen, by all means. So, yes, amazing story, Island of the Blue Dolphins. If you haven't read it, I totally suggest it. It's a beautiful story. Karana is a really courageous character, and I really enjoyed her. Um, You don't have to read Zia if you don't want to. (laughs) It was one of my absolute favorite books growing up. Yeah, and it's a relatively quick read as an adult. It took me, I think, at least a couple of days when I was a kid, if not a week. But now I think I can read it in about an hour or two, just because it's very quick. Yeah, I think I'm going to go reread it. <laughs> I have my copy that I bought from the bookstore that was not far from my house growing up. I used my paper out money to buy the book. And I read it so much that it's like when you open it, the pages <laughs> fall out. But I still have it. I have my original copy from fifth grade that nice. I have also loved dearly. That's awesome. I'm glad you love you love that book and you knew about it. I tell people about it sometimes and they're like, I've I've never heard of that. It was, like, oh, a, it was a great book. A, it was a book we read in fifth grade as a class, actually. Oh really? Yeah. So And then I just awesome. loved it, so I kept reading it. Yeah, I went to Catholic school in fifth grade and I don't believe that it was part of our curriculum. Yeah. My husband Shaw says that it, they had to read it in school as well, and he remembers reading it. I don't know now. I don't know what children do now in school. They could all be on Twitter for all I know. But <laughs> <laughs> I think they still read books, but I don't know if they read that one. Yeah. I, there That's are just... many other books. Scott Odell, <laughs> Scott Odell uh, won a Newbery Medal in uh, 1964 for this book, so mm-hmm. it was a very popular book at the time very very awarded and it should be it's a beautiful book it really is i'm excited to reread it thank you and so Juana much maria lynn it. she was for real she went to the mainland and enjoyed all co- kinds of corn and stuff but unfortunately died she was the last of her kind shout out to Juana maria hey <laughs> so we've referenced several other episodes in this particular podcast and you can find us at whereedisitpodcast.com to see show notes and listen to individual episodes you can also find us on social media we're on twitter and instagram and you can email us at whereedisitpodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions questions comments concerns please don't yell at us that's my only request in all caps yeah just no all caps emails please (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.